Welcome to the Post-Christian Podcast. My name is Eric Bryant. I'm one of the executive pastors at Gateway in Austin, Texas. My foundation exists to equip and empower church leaders in reaching new people and raising up leaders. I'm the author of Not Like Me and Fruitful, Becoming Who God Created You to Be. Join me on social media for Through the New Testament for Skeptics and Seekers. And be sure to sign up for my email newsletter where you can receive free resources at ericbryant.org. In today's episode, I'm excited to have Dr. Holly Beers from Westmont. How are you doing, Holly? Oh, I'm doing well. Just gave a final exam and I have a couple more this week. Excellent. Well, my daughter has loved being in your class and you have been teaching at Westmont for how long? This is my 11th year already. Wow, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Well, to me, I love, you know, certainly having a young adult in my family who goes to your class and comes away more inspired, uh, more engaged with the scripture. I would love to just hear your experience as a professor at a Christian college. You've been there 11 years. What have you seen changing, if anything, among students that come to your school, kind of in this new world, and Gen Z, I would just love to get some of your insights in working with these students. It's a good question. And by the way, your daughter is a delight. I've really enjoyed having her in class. So glad. I, I would say one trend I've noticed since I've come to Westmont it are declining levels of biblical literacy. So more and more students are coming in to Westmont knowing very little about the Bible. So, you know, you have to teach them about who Abraham is or who Paul is before you can make some of the the higher level connections. At Westmont, people are not required, students are not required to sign a statement of faith. They don't have to be Christian. Faculty and staff do, but students don't. And I've also noticed more students coming to my classes. And I teach the big general education intro to New Testament. So everyone has to take that class. And there are only two of us who teach it. So I I get to know half the students. But I have more students who aren't Christians or wouldn't identify in that way when they come in. Or perhaps they were raised in a Christian home, but they're angry about something or are hurt by something that happened. And so they're they're in conflict in terms of their own Christian identity. I think those are at least two trends, though I always have had and continue to have a very committed majority of students who want to learn more about the Bible, who want to be discipled. They have good questions. They want answers to their questions. And so so that has remained um, constant, I would say. Yeah. Well, knowing there's a little bit more biblical illiteracy, what are some of the connections you try to help those students, kind of those with maybe a a post-Christian background, maybe their parents or grandparents would have known more about the scriptures before they took a class on the New Testament, but what are some of the connections you see helping those students? I make the case throughout my classes that what we're doing is actually, or could be actually relevant for everyday life. So I say many times throughout the semester, if you're not a Christian or if you're not sure how you think about this, it's still in a global world, it's still important to know something about Jesus, who's arguably one of the most influential people who's ever lived and his first followers. I mean, this is a global movement and to be good global participants, we need to know something about this. I also, I tell them, I also hope that you have some sense of why after this class, why he was so impactful. Why did he have the influence that he did? There are reasons for that. And we can, we can better understand those if we attempt to see him 
through first century eyes as 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 often as possible. So I make actually a pretty big deal, especially in the beginning of the semester, about the disconnect between our current 21st century postmodern space and a first century Mediterranean space. I really want students, whether they're Christian or not, to feel a little bit like an outsider when they come to the text, because that can be a really good posture for learning. And the students with low biblical literacy levels already feel that, but I actually tried to help my Christian students who know a little bit more feel that too, because it equalizes the class. And then I can invite them into something that feels like an adventure and a journey for, for everyone. So I try to make the case that it's relevant. And then I share quite a bit of my own personal testimony, discipleship story throughout the class when we're in various texts to, to illustrate for them at least one way that a text that we're in could impact someone's daily life. You know, how do I live on the ground my family, with my friends, with the church. So I give lots of examples because I think that most students who end up at Westmont are at least interested. They're open to thinking about how this could this could make real life more meaningful, could give it purpose, could change the way that people make decisions, that kind of thing. Hmm. I love that. Do you feel like there are certain principles that you teach that help them get into the mind of someone from the Mediterranean, you know, 2000 years ago? Well, I say again and again, if we were first century Mediterranean people, and then I say things like, well, of course, as a group, we'd be shorter than we are right now, because we know, you know, quite a bit about how, what average heights were like. And, you know, I say things like we would all have, or most of us would have dark hair, dark eyes, dark skin. So I try to help them imagine their way into that space by, by, um, describing even what we would look like and what we would have had to eat that day, that kind of thing. So that I found that to be pretty, pretty um, successful. Students are happy. Most of them are happy to come along with me and engage in that practice. I also choose texts. So in an intro to New Testament class, I can't cover every detail of every text. It's impossible. I do teach a little something on most of the New Testament books, but I choose texts that I think my students are going to be interested in. So things that connect to current cultural realities. I always teach the text on women. I always teach a section of text in 1 Corinthians that I call the sex text because students are so interested in sexuality and and everything connected to that. I teach a text on money in 2 Corinthians. Um, I teach the Lord's Prayer in Matthew as my focus text because most students are vaguely familiar with that at least, but none of them have a good sense of how a first century Jewish person might have understood that language. So, so I'm very selective. Sometimes I choose texts that, that are a little bit more controversial. You know, when Jesus interacts with the Syrophoenician woman in Mark seven, and that's where he uses the language of dogs. I, ch- I choose that in Mark because I want students to think about how, again, how an ancient Mediterranean person would have heard that and understood that text. So overall, that's gone pretty well, actually. I, I you know, sometimes I say to students, I know that what we're going to do can be challenging to to focus on the text on women or to focus on text on sex, but this in some ways is the best place to do this is in a classroom setting like this. So come along with me and, and we'll explore it and we'll think through all the questions and you can ask any question you want. So, so that, that has, has gone fairly well for me. Students tend to engage. I love that. And I feel like, you know, obviously you're picking some of the hot topics and uh, it's interesting. I'm trying to help a lot of our folks here in Austin that are part of our church to that aren't familiar with the Bible, start reading through the Bible. And I made kind of this 
last minute I uh, proclamation at the end of last year that I was going to go through every chapter in the New Testament and do a two minute video. So I've been doing that on social media this year. Ew. I wish I had known your philosophy because that would have been far easier because I think you're giving them handles on some of the bigger topics that they can then use with other passages. Yes, that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, The language of handle is really helpful there, actually. That is what I'm trying to do. That's great. Well, and I love uh, this book that you've written, because I think your your book, A Week in the Life of a Greco-Roman Woman, is going to also kind of open folks' eyes to that context. Talk a little bit about what's included in the book. I'm going to give away a few copies to those who are signed up for my newsletter, but talk about the book for a moment, if you don't mind. Sure. I wrote it as a way to invite people into the world of the New Testament, people who wanted to better imagine their way into that space or to even imagine themselves as first century people, which is what I'm always encouraging my students to do. So I really had people like my mom in mind who loves the New Testament and so, so badly wants to understand it better and better. And I wrote it for my student population as well, because um, they, you know, I, I don't want this to feel like just an academic practice that we're doing. This is imaginative and formational in all in all the best ways. So the main character is a woman and I got to, it's part of a series, the book that IVP has, has published. And when I got asked to think about writing the one on a woman, I said to the publisher, I said, I'd like her to be free. In other words, I didn't want her to be a slave woman, but I didn't want her to be an elite woman either. A lot of what we know about the ancient world and a lot of the focus has been on the elites, you know, the wealthy, that they're actually a tiny minority class at the top. So I wanted to do my best to represent someone who'd be much more average or typical where she, she's not a slave, she's free, but she's she and her family are living at the base of subsistence survival. So, you know, looking and working every day to get something to eat that day, really having to rely on networks of people, including any relatives they have to to get by, to, to survive, to make it to the next day. And then I also wanted to cover some of the women's realities. So my main character is pregnant and she already has one child. And that's a major theme in the book is her dealing with that because for most women in the ancient Mediterranean and actually most women throughout history, globally speaking, having a baby would be the most dangerous thing they would ever do. Mm. So I wanted to highlight that. We actually know quite a bit about how that worked and what their practices were. So that's that's a dominant thread. And then I also wanted her to be not a follower of Jesus and not Jewish because I wanted her to encounter people like Paul and Ephesus and Priscilla and Aquila. So those are some major features of the book. And you get to you get to experience through her eyes, you know, why the gospel would have been compelling, but also kind of scary. And you get to experience the lived realities of just trying to survive as well. Mm. Well, and what's fascinating about that is, you know, I think it's uh, isn't it first Timothy that talks about, you know, you'll be saved in childbearing. Yes. And and it's also this, you know, women a need to, you know, basically not speak unless they are learning. Uh, and, and and it's funny how people understand that saved in childbearing has got to be something about the context, but they don't put the same application on silence, which in reality, the whole thing is wrapped up in the context. Yes. It, it's saved in childbearing. In, in other words, God is the one to go to instead of Aphrodite, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, exactly. That would have been a very powerful hope for women who often, you know, prayed to various deities 
especially goddesses for protection during pregnancy and childbirth, because they knew that they were taking a risk and they could die from it. So the idea that, that Jesus is the one who could actually protect you from that would be so powerful for them. So practical, Hmm. a, a practical life application. Well, and then talk a little bit about the light that might come on for some of the kids as they start to put themselves in that position you know, I'm picking on a, a very, you know, difficult passage that some people have different views on, but it does seem to be much more wrapped up in the women who had come from the temple of Aphrodite and now are disrupting in the church. Like, do you, do you see? That's what I think is going on there. Yes. I think, I mean, we know so much about Ephesus, ancient Ephesus. It's, it's been, excavated so carefully archaeological we have so many documents that are connected to it and i find it very hard to believe that that what paul's doing in first timothy isn't connected to that ephesian context in really specific ways so so yes i i agree with you i think that's the best understanding of it paul is addressing some group of women who are bringing with them into the church baggage from their former commitments to other deities, including the patron goddess of Ephesus. That's what I think. So he's correcting and reshaping, um, but not, I I don't read that as a permanent um, restriction where he's telling all women to be quiet forever. He wants them to be retaught so that they can do a better job. And it would make sense that some of these women would bring that, that other baggage into the church from their other context. I mean, we all do that even in church context today. (laughs) If only we and sometimes it needs to be corrected. Silent. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I, I think that there's part of the beauty of what you do is helping students and young people really understand the original intention. Uh, Paul mm-hmm. absolutely says there's no difference between male and female, you know, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. Everyone gets spiritual gifts. There's no exclusion for women can't teach when it comes to spiritual gifts. And yet, at the same time, I know, from my understanding, Westmont does a good job of, of having the conversation with people that might believe differently on issues such as women in ministry. How have you continued a, a positive conversation in a world that's so divided and seems to draw lines and turn your back on people you disagree with? How do you continue that kind of healthy dialogue? Oh, well, I have have at least a few strategies. First of all, in my classes, when I teach on those texts on women, I represent the two main views. I mean, if we're going to keep those texts that tell women to be quiet, you know, if we're not just going to set them aside, we're going to keep them because we have a high view of scripture and Westmont is a high view of scripture kind of place. Then basically there are two options for what you can do. And I teach both of those options in class and try to show students how the conversation works between the different views, the the ways they critique each other and the way they respond to critiques that are raised against their own position. So I try to be fair by representing what's actually out there and not just teaching one view as if it's the only view. The other thing I've tried to do is build and maintain relationships with people who disagree with me on a topic like that, on a question like that. And I tell students that. I say some of my closest faculty friends here at Westmont even are more, you know, hold a different view on this than I do. And that's good because if I have them in my life as friends first, then I can't dehumanize them or the view. I can't become really dismissive of things they think because they're my friends and they're in my, my personal space. And so that has encouraged me strongly to, to treat both of the views fairly and honestly and not just protect my, you know, my own view. So I offer that as a model to students 
in, in terms of the way that they're thinking through some of the answers to questions they have. That's fantastic. Let me ask you one last question. With what was happening at Asbury and started to happen around other campuses, and I even heard stories uh, from my daughter about some of these all-night prayer times on campus on Friday nights. Are you seeing a hunger in these younger students? Do you sense there may be something different? I sense, yes, hunger is a good word, a lot of openness to what God might want to do. And for some students, depending on the backgrounds they come from, they may not have thought about it that way before. In other words, even they might not even be have been asking the question, what might God want to do here in this space here at Westmont, you know, with us and among us. And more students are asking that question than ever before here at Westmont. So my own background is Pentecostal and I still would see myself and that's my home space. And I've been very encouraged by students. So many students coming to me and saying, you know, how can I think well and pray well about what God might want to do in my life or in this, the life of this community? How, how is the Holy Spirit a part of that? And I get to be a guide on some of those conversations, which is so encouraging. Mm, that's fantastic. Well, thanks for all you do, Holly, investing in the next generation. Really appreciate your time. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I love my job. I always tell people I have the best job in the world. So I'm really honored to be able to do it. Excellent. Thanks for joining us on the Post-Christian Podcast. More resources available at ericbryant.org.